Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hi, this is Michael Waits from Asia Tech Podcast Stories, and I'm with Florian Bonner, who is the head of global partnerships at Mobike. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. I am doing super. So where are you from originally? I'm originally French, but I grew up in the U.S., so I've been in Florida and Massachusetts for uh, a good amount of time. Oh, tell me, where in Massachusetts are you from? Uh, in, the, in Concord, uh, so close to Boston. Fabulous. So I grew up in Nantasket Beach. You probably have not heard of it, but a small town south of Boston, right on the ocean. Okay. Well, yeah, same area. Yeah, I'm always interested to meet other people from Massachusetts, and frankly, I haven't lived in Massachusetts in on almost 45 years, but still, I just find it really interesting. It's an interest. It's a weird place, Massachusetts. <laughs> no, I wouldn't say weird. I, I mean, I love it. I, I, I really wish I have more opportunities to go back. Yeah, I mean, weird in the sense that you know, it's one of the original places in the United States, and some of the people that are there have been there for you know centuries, and it just feels like mm. they haven't developed much since they got there. So I just find it an interesting place. <laughs> So, give me a little bit of background. What brought you to Asia in the first place? Yeah, sure. Um, actually, it's a it's it's quite a, a straightforward story. I was always fascinated by Asia as a kid through um, popular culture. I mean, like uh, manga and origami and and karate and you know just popular culture. And um, after I graduated from university, I got a chance to come for the first time through a number of different uh, internships. And it just so happened that I had a chance to go to China. And after going there for the first time, when I came back to, to France at the time, I only had one thought in my head, which was, wow, I, I have to go back. But so why? I, what, was the, what was the thing about it? So I find it really interesting. And I had a similar experience, but obviously years before. But what was it about it that made that that had that wow factor? Uh, for me, it was really the the mysterious side of it because uh, so I, as I mentioned, I, I was born in France and then grew up in the U.S. So let's say the the Western world, so to say, I was familiar with, but then there was this whole other side of the world that was a total mystery, and then that can be uh, detailed on a number of different levels, including obviously the language, uh, the culture, the the food. Uh, relationships, uh, anything like work, uh, ethics, everything was like um, totally new and, and something to discover all over again. So I like that. I like that idea that it was the unknown, and then you had to go out there and 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 face the challenge, and then learn the language, learn the culture to eventually make it. So that's what was was really exciting to me. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the that's the beauty of it, right? Is that you go to a place where you don't know anything, and exactly. You know, you're already kind of a young adult, right? I'm presuming early 20s, and you get there, and you're just thinking, oh, my God, everything that I knew already is almost invalid. Exactly. And and, and 10 years later, now, uh, same thing. Like, I had the chance to go to South Korea for the first time. Right. And the same thing starts all over again. You're like, oh, my God, this is like day one in China. I don't <laughs> understand anything, and, and <laughs> I can't speak a word. And, yeah, so I, I, I like that idea. I like the fact that it's uh, it's culturally very distant, and, and then you have to, to learn the language and learn the culture. That's what uh, drew me in the, the first place. And then uh, you're right, like young, young adults after university, uh, and then professionally speaking, I thought it wasn't a bad idea to be in this uh, – in this economy that at the time was growing like twelve uh, percent or ten percent, I thought I thought that was uh, that was a good choice too. So that's why I, I stayed. So when you moved to the United States, how how old were you? 
Uh, I was in Florida. When I was in Florida, I was uh, like um, uh, from 3 to 6 or something, and then uh, Massachusetts from uh, 10 to 15 or so. Okay, so you moved back and forth. This is what part of what makes it really interesting to me, right? So as a three-year-old, you know, moving from France to to Florida, did you didn't speak any English? I'm guessing when you moved to Florida, yeah? No, no, a, I was I was still learning my mother tongue at the time. Right, but so here's the thing for me. It sounds like you've been doing this your whole life, right? I mean, even at a time when you didn't know it, right? So maybe. You're three to six, you move back to France for a few years, then you move to Massachusetts, and it's like now you're a little boy, but you still have to go through that cultural change, the language change, like you said, ethics, just every little bit of life is just different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I and, think it's no it, it's no wonder that I'm so attracted by, uh, by Asia is because I've always been uh, brought up in this kind of environment. Right, and that's, so that was the point that I was trying to make, is that it's interesting to me because by the time you get to... You know, you have to go to South Korea, and maybe it's business related. You're like, okay, I've kind of done this before, and because for most people, right? Think about it. If you if you'd only grown up in France until you were 25 years old, and then someone said, okay, you have to go to South Korea and figure out how to get this business going there. It's just really challenging, and just the combination of business, personal language, culture, food, which is you know embedded in the culture. It's just like, how am I going to handle all this stuff? But the fact that you've been doing it your whole life means, even though it's challenging, it's a known, it's a known entity at least, right? No? I, I completely agree, definitely. And I think I'm, uh, I'm not doing a bad job at it, definitely not. But um, what, what you're saying makes me think of two things. The first one is um, sometimes you meet um, uh, people who were born to parents in the military. And right. I specifically remember this person. Uh, who was 25 or something at the time. And um, she literally moved every two years since she was born. So she had been, she had lived in, in over 10 countries uh, and she had like 10 different lives. So I'm, I'm really interested in, in such, uh, such life tracks or people who have this kind of experience. And then uh, the second thing that comes to mind is um, just jumping jumping back on what you said is yes it was South Korea it was for um, for Mobike uh, but then looping back to about a year ago uh, I'm the first foreigner from Mobike who who went to Singapore and um, did the market research there and did all the preliminary work to actually launch the service and then we launched Mobike in March of 2017. So yeah, same thing. Going there, adapting to local business practices, uh, trying to learn a little bit of Singlish, although I don't try to speak Singlish, um, and just building the whole team and and getting the 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 service running. So it was very much again like like what you said, yeah. Yeah. So before you get to Mobike, what other kind of work experience did you have? Like, what exactly was WeSmart? If you don't mind going over that a little bit. Yeah, sure. And before I talk about WeSmart, I just want to mention the very first job I had in China, uh, which was amazing. And it links back to the cultural thing because it was uh, I was a quality auditor. So my job was to go to factories in and around Shenzhen and do daily inspections of, of simple products like a, a toys, um, a, a kid's toy or, or a toothbrush or just very, very simple products. But it was amazing because I had the chance to go to those factories and work with the workers and at the time I didn't speak any Chinese and it was incredible to have a chance to sit down next to them on the production line almost and just basically do the same 
job as they did for one day and in and, and a lot of different factories, a lot of different cities. So I really cherished that experience because it was also something that was culturally interesting and that kind of opened me up to Chinese culture and the whole manufacturing side of China. So that was that was exciting. But what is that, um, what is what is that like actually sitting on a f I have no idea and I can't even conceptualize it, right? Like what is it like sitting or standing on a factory line and actually watching or actually making products on a day-to-day -day basis? What is that really like? If 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 you do it for one day and you're open-minded, it's really interesting as I said. Um it's a little bit tougher if uh if you do that, you know, eight, ten, twelve hours a day, every day for weeks, months and years, it's it's strenuous. And obviously as you can imagine it's a it's not the most creative kind of job that one can find. So uh it's tough. It's definitely tough. But, what but I've you... always thought sorry, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. I've always thought that there's um there's a kind of um everlasting optimism in, in, in China and in Chinese culture. So um at least the way I remember it, you know, from this experience eight years ago, um, they were quite happy. Yes, the the job was hard, but they were making much more money than what they would make if they stayed in their hometown. Um, and with that job, they could send money back to the family. So they were definitely happy and, and optimistic. And of course, when you've got a a foreigner who walks in the factory and starts to talk to them and, and work with them for a day, that's that's also the highlight of the week, maybe. For sure. So. I mean, it's yeah. always been my view, and the reason why I ask, right, is because it's so easy to write a story from Europe or from the United States about, you know, working conditions and Chinese factories and stuff like that, but it always appears to me that it's a life-changing um, position to be able to, like you said, come from the countryside, get a job that pays way more money than you could earn um, at home. But also the camaraderie and sort of that feeling you have of, like you said, of being super positive all the time. Like, this is hard, but it's hard for a reason. And all the hard work that we're going through is a benefit, not just me personally, but my whole family. And it's likely that the next person in the family may or may not have to do that. But it seems, like you said, an optimistic opportunity for them. And it's not negative, really, at all. Definitely. Definitely. It's, it's harsh. And, and, of course, everyone knows it. But... Um... Yeah, it's an opportunity. I mean, the the, the country is, is transforming, so there must be some of that at, at some point. Yeah, and so, like, what did you learn about work ethic and just sort of work approach just by being in the factory every day? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's hard, but, but like you said, it's people are being optimistic about it, and it must mean, you know, people come in every day, and if you're working in a factory it's it's hard and it's sort of tedious but still just getting up every day and succeeding through that is something to me that seems really noble yeah definitely well per perseverance is really the word the word that comes right. to mind right 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 just perseverance um, it's great right yeah yeah no that's that's the word that comes to mind right now yeah yeah so after you do that for a while did, did you start studying mandarin as well at that time um, so that experience in Shenzhen came after two years of me studying Mandarin uh, in China, in uh, in France. Sorry. Oh wow. Um, so I studied that for two years, which gave me like the basics, uh, a couple dozen words of vocabulary. Um, in Shenzhen, it was really about learning the the culture and then familiar, familiarizing myself with the country since it was the first time. Uh, and then there was 
a lot more back and forth between China and um, and France for a couple of years. I uh, I went back to university, so I went back to Tsinghua in Beijing also uh, to specialize in energy management and sustainability because I really wanted to give that direction to my to my career. Uh, what I was doing in the factory, and then later on I worked for um, an OEM in the car industry. Uh, that was great, but it didn't have a, a, a big enough environmental impact, I felt. So I went back to Tsinghua and then specialized in, in sustainability. And that's how I came to meet the, the partners with whom I, I, I co-founded WeSmart in Shanghai in 2013. Right. So where is the basis for your, what's the right way to say this? For your like sense of concern about environmental protection and and pluriculturalism come in like where where's the genesis of that where does it start? Uh, well, pluriculturalism is definitely the experience in the U.S. and the fact that my parents were very open-minded and they also had the travel bug, so I was very fortunate to have the chance to to travel. Yeah. Um, and I think it's also a question of. Uh, of personality, you know, some people want to try new things and new food, and and some not so much. So it's not, it's also not something you can force um, upon everyone. Um, and the second thing, the the sustainability part, is probably related to um, a way of thinking that I have, which is um, which is finding the way to go by identifying the ways not to go. So. Um, when we look, when I look at myself in Mobike right now, and I look back, it feels like the path is very clear. Um, but the path was actually built as I went on, and a number of times I just identified, you know, what I really didn't want to do hmm. at that point or at that time, and then went for what was left, you know. And so sustainability was exactly the same thing. I had worked in like manufacturing, quality control, and I saw that. And that was great, but uh, I didn't want to have a career in that. And then the, um, the, automotive, the automotive OEM, same thing. That was great. Uh, it was more of an engineering job. I learned a lot, but um, I didn't want to do that for many years either. So sustainability was kind of like the, um, the field that, that was left, that I was drawn to. And that's the only one that I really felt had um, purpose and um, in which I could make a, a potential impact. That's how I came to, to, to focus more on, on sustainability. Okay, so that leads probably to WeSmart. Do you want to talk about what WeSmart did, how it got founded, how it got built, and stuff like that? Yeah, sure. So when I was at Tsinghua, I met um, another French guy who had a consulting company based in France okay. who was doing um, uh, yeah, sustainability consulting. And uh, I, I reached out directly to him. I told him, hey, I love what your company's doing. They already had uh, developed a software through a consulting mission they did for a local company. Uh, and I told him, yeah, I, I love what you guys are doing. I love the software. I've been in China for a while. At the time, it was like four years. I told him, why not try and see if uh, we can't do something in, in, in China? Because, again, I felt like the market was uh, growing uh, for sustainability and just general awareness of environmental issues so i told him why not try and uh fast forward three years we were raising uh seven million renminbi from a local shanghai fund we had a team of about 20 people uh we had large international customers like uh, coca-cola a lot of um french multinationals as well because from my network it was it was kind of easier to reach out to them so carrefour uh michelin a number of big retailers, hotels, 
uh, basically anyone who's got a, a big building or a big factory that consumes a lot of energy. So what WeSmart did was uh, gather energy data in real time and then send that to our cloud platform. So it's basically an energy management system. Um, but the twist on it, which really excited me, was the fact that it was also meant to change people's behavior. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't only a budgeting tool, it was also a way to engage people in sustainability. Uh, and that was really, for me, the, the thing that, that excited me because uh, then it links back to education. And I think it's really, really important to, to teach everyone about why we need to turn off the AC when we leave the, the office and, and turn off the light, et cetera, et cetera. It's not about enforcing. If we try to enforce this kind of thing, uh, it might not work as well as if we gamify it into a, into a fun system and then and then explain to people why we want to turn off the light when we leave the office. So that was the um, that was the vision behind the company. So how did you gamify this type of energy conservationism and how did you? Because it's a really great concept, right? Like you said, you can you can you can try to force people or enforce people into a certain behavior, or you can just encourage them to do it by gamifying the concept. So how did you go about gamifying this to let people know that energy conservation was important? Yeah, so anything that can be measured can be tracked and can be controlled and can be improved. For that's sure. The, 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 the basic, uh, that's the basic, that's the starting point. And so we would install those meters um, that would gather data. So it could be uh, lighting, uh, air conditioning, uh, heating, just whatever. Uh, and then this data has to be made um, beautiful to look at. It's got to be it's like in the in the UI UX. It's got to be easy to use. It's got to have colors. Uh, it doesn't. It must not look like an engineering software. That's the first thing. Um, and then that's just the, the theory of gamification, which I'm not an expert. But uh, the main elements would be uh, uh, having a personal profile. So you log on to the application, and then you've got your own uh, avatar. You've got your own page. Uh, we would also give targets uh, and quests to the employees. Um, if you complete that quest, you can get a reward. So the rewards we would also discuss with the partners. So for example, uh, Peugeot Citroën was our, our first customer. And um, we created a competition between uh, the eight floors they had in their, in their office, their R&D center in, in Shanghai. And so they had eight floors, and we monitored different parameters per floor, and then we created a competition between the between the floors. That was also a great way to get people going because uh, then the social elements kick in, and people from the fourth floor are really competitive, and they definitely don't want people on the sixth floor to win. So everybody changes their behavior. Um, that's kind of like social social pressure and peer pressure because they they, they want to compete with their um, with their colleagues. Um, and then last thing I can say is like the reward, we didn't go for anything uh, uh, fancy or super expensive or, or whatever. The reward was very simply um, a large a piece of paper that we printed with some data analytics about <laughs> how much was saved. It's so great. Uh, uh, a, uh, a ranking of each floor um, and uh, some kind of a diploma with the signature from the CEO. And so we had a little ceremony. The CEO came to, I don't remember which one won. It's fourth floor because they're very competitive. So fourth floor won. And then the CEO came to the fourth floor, uh, had a little speech for 10 minutes. 
and everybody was ecstatic. Like people were 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 incredibly happy to have the CEO come down and congratulate them, and like it, it really worked. And uh, the reward, yeah, it didn't cost us much, but that wasn't the that wasn't the point. So that's that's how we gamified the system. Yeah, that is actually hilarious. Just that it's that simple. Just that it's that simple to encourage people to change their behavior by giving them a simple reward. And I love the concept of making the fourth floor competitive against the seventh floor and the eighth floor. Yeah. yeah. So there's an there, there's another study um, that uh, whoever the people listening can also look at if they're interested. Uh, I don't remember the name of the study, but the idea is um, in, in California in a hotel they were trying to do that to control the the AC. And then they had three different um, flyers that you would put on the door handle. And then one said, uh, please turn off the AC, it's good for the earth. Uh, the second one said, please turn off the AC, uh, it's going to save money, and then maybe you can get a discount. And then the third one was, uh, please turn off the AC, all your neighbors are doing it. Right. And And... It turns out, like the third one was the one that was by far the most efficient. So again, in 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 game in gamification theory, you've got a number of things that say like it's not the the price of the reward or you know doing something good for the earth. I think everybody's aware of that, but then connecting on a personal level to actually change your behavior is is a little bit hard. But if you use those social elements, like comparing to your neighbors, um, that works actually really well. It sounds like you've built a really interesting but also non-trivial company. Like it doesn't sound like WeSmart was just a simple app that you built somewhere, particularly if you were installing sensors in places and were working with senior management to create the reward system. What was the sales cycle like for this, particularly if you're dealing with big companies, right? Like you said, you know, Peugeot and Coca-Cola and Castrol and stuff like that. Like what was, how did that work? Uh, so the sales cycle was uh, relatively long, uh, but we succeeded in shortening it quite a bit. So maybe the first customer it took us two or three months, and then by the end, onboarding a customer should not have taken more than two weeks. Um, of course, relative with their internal uh, procedures and everything, like the contract signing and the MNCs, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, once we had the right partners on board to supply the hardware, so the metering part, and then the right partner to actually install, to integrate the solution in the building, uh, that that was like 98% of the setup time. Because once the meters are connected, then it's, it, it, it shifts to our cloud platform. And then the business model was SaaS. So with the SaaS platform, it just takes you uh, an hour. And then on the website directly, you can onboard the customer and you can set up the dashboards for him, et cetera, et cetera. So that was like 1% or 2% of the total project time. Um, so yeah, we, we shortened it from maybe two or three months to, to a couple of weeks. Wow. And is this company still ongoing? Um, well, I'm not leading it anymore. Okay. Um, we had four uh, co-founders and um, I, I, I now choose to focus on, on Mobike. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a great idea. I want to get to Mobike in a second. What does what kind of work can you characterize the type of stuff that you do for a startup grind and tell me how you got involved in that? Yeah, sure. So going back to what we mentioned about my my time in university, I was already part of a an association um, that taught science to kids in primary school. Uh, so that was amazing because I love kids and I think education is also another big value that I 
that I like to have in in yeah, in so, my life in so my job. Right? Yeah, I think I think it's key, and so that's why We Smart was all about behavior and and, and teaching users, et cetera, et cetera. That that linked back to my experience in that in that association. And um, after that, well, obviously I graduated and I didn't have a chance to join uh, a community until I moved back to Shanghai in 2013. And at that time, I was just uh, building a network for myself, for WeSmart. I was trying to get out and meet people. So I attended a few of those uh, networking events. And uh, one day I met uh, Eric Walenza, who's the guy who created the local Startup Grind uh, Shanghai chapter in 2012. So I met with him about eight months after he created the local chapter, and then I fell in love with the values of the community, with the team, with this guy who's who's really amazing, and um, and then I joined them as co-director a, a few months later. So we've been running this for four years in Shanghai now, and um, Startup Grind is the biggest global community of entrepreneurs. So it was created in Silicon Valley about seven or eight years ago. Um, the guy who founded it is uh, Derek Anderson. And he originally did it like for himself. It was very much Silicon Valley style, like two people in a garage talking about their ideas. And instead of uh, coming up with a startup, he came up with this community. So it's it's a nonprofit. And the idea is that every month uh, we have one event in which we invite one person to share his or her story with the community. So the idea is to educate, uh, connect and support local entrepreneurs. Um, and so in Shanghai, we organize that local chapter. And again, every month we invite someone from the, from the startup community. And what I love about it is that we're also not industry specific. So we had people from, uh, the F and B, we obviously have people from the tech world, we have VR, but we also have like HR, um, fashion, uh, retail, we've got a lot of different topics that are covered. And so every month it's a different speaker who, who shares his or her experience for about an hour with the community. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like there's a philosophy that you have that is really concerned with giving something back and making a difference, right? I mean, if you Definitely. look at the things that are important to you, whether it's energy conservation or environmental protection, you know, educating children and even startup grind where it's not about, you know, earning something or making yourself better, but just sort of sharing experiences and allowing other people to benefit from those experiences, it sounds like you're you're quite concerned philosophically about helping out. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, definitely, because I remember very clearly when I was in the other seat, uh, and I was really thankful to people who would take the time you know, to answer questions or to give feedback or something. So I'm really grateful to, to those people who did that for me. So now I feel like I should also do that for other people. Um, and um, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, thank you for putting it that way. That, that sounds nice. <laughs> But it it is nice, right? I mean, and I'm you know it's my it's my idea to sort of figure out you know what makes people successful. But it also seems to me, and I used to say when I was working, right, you don't have to be mean to be smart, um, mm. because a lot of the people with whom I worked figured out or tried to figure out that you know being mean would let them get ahead. And it always seemed to me that the smarter you were, the nicer you were. It's just great to be able to interact with people that are you know, successful and you're going to be more successful, but part of their philosophical part of life is giving things back. Uh, it just means that, you know, there's a big pie out there. You don't have to take every last slice of the pie. It's still really good to sort of take some of mm. it and give it away to help mm. people the same way you were helped along the way. And just philosophically, that's very important to me. 
And mm. I kind of it resonates to me when people tell those types of stories because, you know, I hear it and I I understand it because philosophically I'm aligned with that as well. It's just interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll stop throwing myself flowers right after that, but I I can say a couple of things. The first one is, uh, you know, on your WeChat you've got like a, a status update or something, and mine has always been for for many many years now. Zhenmeigui. Uh, which means uh, when you give someone a rose, they're still scent in your hand, which kind of goes back to what you were saying. And uh, and the second thing is that sometimes in the startup grind events, I have people coming up and and you know asking me, uh, so how how do you make money from this? I'm like, no, no, it's a it's a nonprofit, and they 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 look kind of confused, <laughs> like so. So what, what's your problem? What, what are you doing? What, 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 yeah, what's your problem? What are you doing this? I'm like, because I. I like to enjoy events, you know, like it's fun to organize an event for 150 people and, and have them have a good time. And then they come back to us and, you know, uh, to just tell us the, the event was amazing and, and that's enough. Like, that's really cool. That is really cool. And I love that phrase. When you give someone a rose, you still have a scent in your hand. I think I'm going to use that actually. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'll send you the, the Chinese character so you can have that as you well. You should, you should definitely do that. If you can cut and paste that into, um, into the Skype chat, that would really be great. I mean, I can look for it yeah. myself, but it's always better if you can just paste it in because that, you know, this is one of those things you learn. And this is one of the great benefits for me, right? As somebody who's been outside of their home culture for more than half of their life. And that is, you have a you know a preconceived notion about what every sort of culture is like, and yet in most cases you're wrong, and you don't know that embedded in that culture is a phrase like that that says, you know, when you give someone a rose, you still have a scent in your hand. But knowing that is also a window onto how people perceive things, and if you learn that in the native language, it cha just changes your whole perception about what that culture is like. And I think that's awesome, right? That's one of the greatest benefits of living in a place that's not your own is that you get to learn that and that sort of echoes really deeply inside the brain. And when you're living your daily life in China, you think about that all the time and that that's awesome for me. Definitely, definitely. That's why I was also so motivated to learn the language is because I, I understood hopefully early, early enough uh, that that it's so deeply connected to the culture and to behavior exactly. as well. Exactly. So, I mean, every country is the same, but, but China may be more specifically so there's no way you can understand the business or the culture or the food uh I, i'm a foodie if you hadn't noticed already. <laughs> uh if, if you don't learn the, the the language to start off with right i mean one of the things that i used to say when i lived in japan was the the culture itself is deeply embedded inside the food and inside the language and if you don't sort of you know see people will come to your country and say oh i don't eat this and i don't eat that and i won't try this and i won't try that and the idea for me was always you have to at least try because Trying the food, just like learning the language, gives you a much deeper understanding into the culture. And if you don't do that, you'll never understand what's going on around you. I, I totally agree. So tell me about Mobike. How did you end up at Mobike? And what has your experience been like so far? What was the original things that you were hired to do? What did you do? And then what led you to being the head of global partnerships? This, this, this company itself sounds like so cool from so many different angles. So I'm just really curious, like, you can walk me through the experience so far. Sure. Um, one of the advisors to the board of directors for WeSmart is the CTO and co-founder of Mobike. So that's how I got to learn about the project in the first place. And um, it was funny because um, I wanted to invite him and or, and or his uh, co-founders 
to talk at Startup Grind, and that was about two and a half years ago. That's that's great. And and so I was I was kind of chasing him uh, for Startup Grind because I didn't know what they were working on, and uh, to be honest, they weren't really <laughs> they weren't really interested. Um, but I I was always in touch with them, and uh, I later realized that they weren't interested in Startup Grind, but they were interested in me. So I was like, wow, awesome! And uh, early 2016. I saw the the prototype bike for the first time, and uh, the CTO demonstrated just right in front of me, and I remember the excitement I had, like like butterflies in my belly, when when I heard the lock open for the first time, and then I pictured the bike going to to the four corners of the earth, uh, and really making an impact. So, yeah, I remember that day very clearly, and then uh, I, I I I fought for like a couple of months to. To be hired. No, it's not fought. It's uh, I, I lobbied I, uh, to get to get hired, and so I, I jumped from from WeSmart to um, to Mobike. I was the first foreigner to join, actually, uh, and and I always like to mention I was employee number thirty seven. <laughs> I saw that. So uh, so it was it was quite early on. We still had a little office in Xiuhui, and I joined the week that we launched in Shanghai. Wait, so you so, were, was, so you were there really from. From essentially the beginning, or you know, right after the beginning. In other words, it wasn't a well-known, globally recognized company when you joined, right? When can I ask you this too? Like, what was their concept with this bicycle? What what sort of inspired them to do this? And what was the difference? I've never seen one of the Mobux. I mean, I have, but only in passing when I was walking around the streets in Shanghai a few weeks ago. But mm-hmm. can you just explain, like, more deeply what they were thinking, why they did this, and then what they actually developed with the bicycle itself? Like, what's different? Yeah, sure. So I actually joined like right when they started operating. Uh, okay. But prior to that, there was about a year and a half where it, where it was like top secret, literally, uh, and only a handful of people knew. And during that time, they perfected the business model. They iterated on the design of the bike, on the technological solution, et cetera, et cetera. So I did join in the very, very beginning uh, when it was public when they had officially launched but you're right at the time it was a startup like uh, like any other startup it was it was crazy i was i was going out and pitching at startup grind for mobike just like any other startup because we had to start somewhere right and we started with like 200 bikes so it was really the the, the beginning and then i had to go knock on doors like um uh, potentially you know marketing partners commercial partners like uh, nike or adidas and I had to to fight my way in the meeting and then tell them, look, this is a cool startup. And they they definitely didn't uh, uh, look down on me, not at all. They were quite interested, but it was a challenge to convince them to work with a, with a little startup, you know. Um, so that was April 2016. And at the time, and and I mean forever, since then, since the, the, the idea and, and up to now, the idea has always been to leverage technology to solve problems that urban areas face, such as traffic congestion and pollution. So the idea has never been to look at the, the, the current industry, the bike share industry, and say, you know, what if we remove the stations? The idea was really to leverage technology. Uh, so the bike, I often say, is, uh, is the tool that we chose to, to provide this solution, but it could have been another, uh, another transportation uh, method. It's just that the bike is, is quite universal, and most people know how to ride one, so, so it fits nicely the, the purpose of the company, which is to provide a more environmentally friendly 
means of transportation for more people in more cities. So that's always been the, um, the, the, the focus, having technology at the core of everything we do. And that's definitely the, the most fundamental difference that there is between Mobike and between all the other guys. So, for example, our, our, our bike is designed to have a four-year lifespan. Uh, that's why the body is in full aluminum, so it doesn't rust or it can withstand the, the, the test of time. Um, there's a GPS embedded in every single bike that allows us to track the fleet of 7 million bikes in real time. So even if the bike is locked, if someone just picks it up for whatever reason, uh, we know about it in real time. And so we also have people on the ground who can go and, and, and try to figure out what's going on. Uh, and we're the only company out there that has a GPS embedded in every single bike. So that's also a, a, a fundamental difference. And then this goes back to the, to the technology vision behind the company. Um, so all these GPS-enabled bikes, um, today they complete about 25 million trips on a daily basis. So that's about four times uh, Uber on a global scale because our trips are shorter right. and it's much more convenient to jump on a mobile. So we have a lot more trips. And these 25 million trips generate about 20 terabytes of data daily. So again, that links back to the technology, like we're a technology company. We're not a bike rental company. The, the biggest part of the, I mean, the, the, the bike part is huge, of course, but another huge part of the business is actually the artificial intelligence in the platform and then making use of that data uh, to increase operational efficiency from the bikes, from the fleet of bikes. So these are a few elements of how, how technology really differentiates us from all the other players out there. So tell me how this works, right? I mean, and I've got a ton of questions here. But so the bike has a GPS in it, which is interesting, right? So you always know where it's located. You know where it's going. You know how fast it's moving. Um, and you can probably know some other things about it as well. But how does the lock work, right? So if it's – and what are the rules around where it needs to get placed, Right, so um, it is GPS enabled, so in the lock we've got a battery, we've got the GPS, we've got a SIM card as well, uh, onboard electronics, a number of sensors, so basically the bike, and that's why we call it a smart bike, the bike is a, is a connected device in the field of uh, IoT, Internet of Things, yep. uh, so we actually operate a fleet of IoT connected uh, smart bikes, and um, the lock is both the elements that will connect the bike to the platform, and it's also the, so to say, the entry point for the user. So everything is app-based. You head to Apple Store and Android Store, and you download the app. Um, it's also available in Washington, D.C., as of yesterday, by the way. Uh, so if anyone who's listening who's in Washington, go and try it out. And so in the, in the app, you register with your phone number, you input your credit card, and then there's a map that pops up, kind of like Uber, except it shows you all the bikes that are around you. And then you go and find a bike. Uh, you press a single button in the app that brings up a QR code scanner. And then with that scanner in Mobike app, you can scan the QR code that's on the bike. And as soon as you, as you do that, it's going to release the lock open. And then your trip is going to start. Again, much like a ride-hailing app, you just get in the car and the trip starts. Uh, you ride to wherever you're going. You return the bike in an authorized parking location, any public bicycle parking is fine, and um, you manually lock the, the bike, and, and, and that's it. So what other sensors are on the bicycle besides the GPS and the lock? So in, in terms of sensors, it's, uh, it's, 
mostly engineering focus. So things like uh, battery level, uh, voltage, a number of, of other sensors related to motion. Uh, most of what we can, mo- most of the data insights will come from uh, data analytics. So we'll come mostly from a uh, location, um, the state of the bike, is it being used or is it locked? Uh, how long since the last time it was used, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So our, our, our platform that we actually nickname uh, Magic Cube, uh, Magic Cube allows us to, um, to garner a lot of data insights to improve our operational efficiency. So one example that I can give, for example, uh, something that we have in the back end is like heat maps. So because we know where the bikes are, that's our, our supply. And because we're app-based, every time someone opens the app, then that's the demand. Because basically when you open the app somewhere, it means you want a bike here, like you want to you want to ride a mobile now. So if we overlap those two data sets, we can get heat maps, uh, which tell us very precisely, you know, we need to have 10 mobikes or 20 mobikes at that street cross at that time of the day. Like we, we also have predictive models that help us to, to rebalance the bikes. Florian, so are, you, are, the, you, are you tapping your hand on a desk? No. Okay, just sounds like there's a little bit of banging going on. Sorry. So go ahead. Okay. So you use the heat map, right? And we, we use the heat map to increase the operational efficiency of the system. So we can predict very clearly, like this metro station, at this exit, uh, we need like 10 bikes on Monday morning or 100 bikes on Wednesday evening because we can predict the demand and then we can very accurately match that with the supply. Yeah, and what other ways do you think you're going to go and use the data, right? So here's just a... Here's just an amateurish view on this. You have a bicycle with a GPS, so you know where it is at all times. You know what time people are using it. You know who's using it. You know the location where they're using it. And you know, I think the one of the most interesting pieces of data there is you know where they are when they think about using it, right? Because they may not be in a spot where there already is a bicycle or where there's a, an an amalgamation of bicycles, right? An aggregation of bicycles as well. So then you can get information about maybe we should move them as long as it's legal into a better spot so it's more easy and more efficient, right? This is the efficiency of use you were talking about. But yeah. once they once they're riding along, like do you know what is to the left and to the right of them when they're riding along? Like which businesses are there, which businesses you've partnered with potentially that are there to increase sales and marketing and stuff like that for people along for businesses along the way for that ride? Right. Uh, to to be honest, I think the answer is in is in the first part of what you said, and it doesn't really go much further than this. Uh, as of today, we really leverage the data to increase operational efficiency. That's that's definitely what we do. Um, also, data privacy is obviously a huge thing. Right. Uh, we abide by any local regulation. If the servers have to be hosted locally, then of course we do that. Um, in our terms and conditions, there are a number of items that are also very clearly laid out. Uh, so we ask for the user's authorization, um, just like any, again, any ride-hailing app would do. But so we're we're very serious about that. And um, for those who listen and have used Mobike, they know that there is no such uh, marketing uh, promotion. Like on your trip, we're not gonna we're not gonna tell you to stop at this the, this shop or that shop. Um, we we don't do that. Uh, for now, we really focus on on the growth of the company as well, and that means increasing the operational efficiency. Um, we do work with brands for cross-branding, cross-promotion, you know, online, offline marketing events. Um, and sometimes in the app, we do broadcast some information, but 
we're very, very strict on how we do this. And uh, Davis Wong, the CEO, ever since, uh, so going back to the days when we were 40, uh, he, he already had his mind very clearly set on that. Uh, we don't want to disturb our users, and uh, we want to provide a reliable, affordable, convenient service. That's definitely the focus right now. So how do you... How do you take payment? Like, what does it cost to use it for me? I've, like I said, I've never used the system. I'm really curious about what what it costs to, you know, take a bike. And is it kilometer based? Is it time based? How how does it work? Uh, it's mostly time based. Uh, going back to the vision of the company, the idea was also to provide something that was affordable to everyone, and some kind of urban transportation that was the cheapest. So one of the design criteria, if I can say, for the business model was to be you know cheaper than the bus. And um, in China, the bus is one or two Chinese yuan. So that's like 25 cents, you know, 15, 25 US um, cents. So in China, it was priced at one yuan for half an hour. Uh, so about 15 cents for half an hour. There's also a, a deposit part in the app. So in China, it's about 45 USD. Uh, and that can be withdrawn from the app at any time by the user if he doesn't want to to use the service anymore. But the deposit is really important because it also kind of ensures the liability of the user, um, you know, when, when he's using the bike. So I mentioned we launched in Washington just yesterday, and the price is $1. So for just a, a dollar, you can hop on a bike, use it for 30 minutes, which is usually enough. For, for that short urban trip you want to take, you know, somewhere where it's it's, it's kind of too far to walk, uh, but it's not far enough for you to jump in a cab, or maybe the the bus or the metro doesn't serve that specific place. So even if you take the bus, you still have to walk. So in such use cases, it's super convenient to just find a bike, pay a dollar, and then you're you you just pedal for 15 minutes, and then you arrive at your destination. So that's the that's the price in in, in the U.S. for example, and then different markets are going to have uh, different prices. But what's really cool is that one account works globally. So if you register for Mobike in the U.S. or in Singapore, uh, you're going to register with your local phone number. You're going to pay with your local payment method. So in, in that case, that would be a credit card and, and debit card for Singapore and the U.S. And, um, well, you can go to Thailand and then ride Mobike with that same account. And you can go to Milan and and Florence in Italy, and also ride Mobike with with the same account. So we have one global app, which is which is really really cool. Okay, I want this. I want this right now in Tokyo, in Fukuoka, and in Kyoto. Like, I don't care what it takes. <laughs> so, we we need to have another call, uh, and I'd be happy to follow up on that. Uh, we we actually already registered the company in uh, Fukuoka. Uh, we announced that maybe three three months ago, and uh, we launched operations in Sapporo about uh, a month ago. So it's also coming to Japan. And I think Japan could be a fantastic market because um, they already have a very strong cycling culture. They do. Uh, and because the, the, the infrastructure is there, and, and I think uh, well, culturally road, and socially, it yeah. would be very well accepted. So yep. I think it's, it's, it would be a fantastic market for such solution. Well, let me, let me give you an example, right? And again, I don't like to generalize from my own experience, but I travel to Japan all the time. Um, I was in Fukuoka and in Tokyo you know, a month ago at, at the most. And whenever I'm there, I don't want to get into a taxi because it's just it's the wrong price, right? Um, but mm. I also love bicycling. So when I lived in Japan, I had a bicycle. I would ride 40, 50 kilometers a week at least. And now when I'm there, I just want to get on a bicycle and go from one place to another place. 
And I actually, mm. every time I'm there, I walk into a bike shop and say, how much does it cost to rent a bike for a day? And they're like, we don't rent bicycles. And I just thought, okay, this is insane. Because mm. there must be other people like I am who want to ride a bicycle from place to place. There is a sort of, there's a hilly sort of sense to Tokyo, which most people don't understand, but I don't really care. I'm walking anyway, right? So whether it's a hill for walking or a hill for biking, it's no different level of exertion for me. But, you know, if I have a bicycle to ride around, I'm just so much more efficient. I don't have to get on the subway. I don't have to wait. But I always used to say the bicycle was scheduled on my time, not on sort of the public transportation time. Mm. I just think it's a massive opportunity. And at the price point where you are offering this, you know, if it's 15 cents or 20 cents or a dollar in the United States for 30 minutes, it's just incredibly efficient for people to be able to use this type of transportation. And it also loops back to what you said. It's also environmentally super friendly. I'd much rather get in onto a bicycle than even an electric car, to be fair. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I agree. I think a lot of what you said points back to the convenience of the service. Like, I think a lot of people would be willing to, to use more bikes. It's just that they don't have the opportunity. Yeah, I agree. And particularly or, in cities or, that f- that facilitate this, right? Fukuoka is the perfect example of this. It is a completely flat city set yeah. out over, I don't know, I'm going to make it up at like five square kilometers. I don't know how big it is, but it's not that big at all. And I walked the entire city for the three or four days that I was there. And I actually did go into a bike shop, which I would, interestingly enough, took Bitcoin, so cryptocurrency for payment, which I thought was <laughs> just fun more than anything. Um it turns out that the owner of the bike shop was a big believer in cryptocurrencies and an owner of a lot of Bitcoin, but that was neat, but they still didn't rent. Well, they did. They rented bikes, but for a thousand yen a day, so for $10 a day, which I thought was a fair price. But again, I had to bring it from their bike, bike shop to where I was going to leave it back at their bike shop, right? And that, that level of convenience, it's good, but it's not perfect, right? Yeah, definitely. Well, that's what, again, that's what Mobike is, is trying to solve. The idea is to have... Um a citywide scheme that is supported by the local government um, that's reliable, affordable, and, and convenient. Oh, and that kind of goes back to, to your earlier question, like how do we differentiate ourselves as well? Not only are we the, the first ones to propose the solution, to push this out, but we're also the only ones to have, I'd say, a responsible attitude about it. So in our expansion plans, uh, we always talk to local governments about us coming to their city. Uh, it's not about dumping bikes and then trying to make it work. It's about building the scheme with the governments. Um, although there are no stations, although there is no public funding, it does require a government support to be a big success. Yeah. So that's why in, in all our previous um, launches, we had the, the mayors of Milan, the mayor of Florence, uh, transport for Greater Manchester, uh, the borough of Ealing, Every time we have local government support to help it make it to help make it a success. Yeah, I mean, look, the benefits to the local governments, the national governments, whatever, are are super obvious, right? I mean, if nothing else, it's great PR for them, but it definitely makes their cities or their little locations more livable. Because mm-hmm. whether it's a tourist coming in the city for three days, it gives them a natural way and a cheap way for transportation. But even for existing people, you don't need to buy your own bicycle. I mean, it changes the whole nature of of movement and mobility inside a city in a way that once you use it is blatantly obvious, but before you have it, it's just a complete unknown, right? And I love the fact that it's sort of a a public-private partnership because I do think it's a paradigm for the way successful businesses going forward will have to work. In a way, like what Uber did was different, right? Because 
the taxi industry itself was super regulated. So in some places, they needed to come in with a hammer and just destroy those regulations. So fair enough. Mm. But the bike market itself wasn't regulated and in most cases isn't regulated. But I agree with you. If you just come into a city, dump bicycles somewhere, it's just it's unnecessarily um, rude, to be fair. And having yeah. that public-private partnership with the cities just makes it so much easier to build and grow that business, and everybody wins, right? Definitely. It kind of goes back to the the discussion we had on language and culture. Like, uh, if you want to go somewhere, you better. I mean, yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. You better start learning the language and and the local way of doing things instead of bringing your own uh, habits and then just saying this is how it's going to be because it's probably not how it's going to be. <laughs> Right. Well, that's the other thing too, though, right? And again, I think there's a reason why someone like you and maybe someone like David is, you know, is the founder of Mobike, but also someone like you is the head of global expansions because your background is perfectly suited for saying, okay, we're going to go to Milan. And you think, well, I've never lived in Italy. What about Italy and what about Milan inside of Italy makes it unique and different, you know, culturally and just sort of from a day-to-day life perspective? I need to learn that first before I can properly expand the business here. And you only know that because... As a three-year-old, you were sort of moved to Florida, and then as a 10-year-old, back to Massachusetts, and then you went back to France, and then back to China. And learning all those things along the way means that it's just an embedded part of your DNA now. Whenever you approach a new thing, you approach it with the same mindset. And that mindset is, I don't know what's going on here, but I know where I can figure it out by learning a few very important things. And then that makes expansion easier. Is that, is that fair as well? Well, I, I, I agree with that. Thank, thank you for saying that, sir. <laughs> Appreciate it. Yeah, but you know what I mean, right? I mean, and I'm only just repeating what I do because I've had a similar experience. When I look at a new situation, I don't look at it with sort of fear and trepidation. I look at it like, huh, what's the fun part of learning what's going on here and how can I do things with a completely open mind? You said this is a word you used much earlier on in the conversation. But like you said, if you have an open mind, I think you can kind of get through anything because you know that there's a whole bunch of stuff there you don't know, right? Definitely. I think it's uh, I think it's a challenge. I think um, no one's ever fully ready for it. Like even if you're quite open-minded, there are still some things that will challenge you. But um, yeah, perseverance. Just persevere to to keep an open mind, and and maybe that's kind of my mindset. I, I feel like that's uh, played out fairly well in the past uh, in the past eight years in China. So yeah. Yeah, that's never going to stop being useful. By the way. <laughs> Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, I think so. Well, think about it, though. So you, you, you talked about this earlier, too. You take somebody off the factory line, right? Somebody who's completely persevered. They've come out of the countryside or come out of a bad situation into working in a factory. They're still optimistic. You could take that person now as well who said, you know, I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to do something for the greater good, which in this case is the family. And I'm going to work really hard and persevere. But you take them out of that business and you put them into sort of international expansion for Mobike or, frankly, any other company. And they're the perfect person to hire to do that because they've already built perseverance into their day-to-day life. Definitely. And so I, I, meet, I meet profiles like this that are just astonishing. They're amazing. Right. And, uh, and going back to the learning the language, like I love to see people who, uh, you know, I'll speak Chinese with them for, for a while. And then 30 minutes later, I realize that they speak French fluently. Like, right. oh, my God. Like, right. what, um, what happened? Like, oh, yeah, I worked for a French company for three years, lived in Paris for two. And... and Boom, there you go, fluent French. And, and yeah, those profiles are, are really, really amazing. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a firm believer, particularly on the language side, that like life is just not that hard if you're committed to getting something done. And I think that's the perfect example of it. So 
Out of the, you said you have what, seven million bicycles deployed, which is pretty incredible considering the company was started when in 2015 officially, or is it 16? So founded, founded in January 2015, started operation with 200 bicycles in April 2016. So this is one of those companies I feel like, you know, again, it's so obvious in retrospect, but when it was first conceptualized, I feel like people would have thought this is never going to work. Oh, definitely. So the main founder. The main founder, Hu Weiwei, uh, in her story, she often tells the fact that when she went in 2015, when she was looking for partners and, and trying to work out the, the first steps of the solution, she met dozens of people who told her, you're, you're mad, you're crazy. Right. And it's never going to work. And it, it, it's like literally what happened to her. And it sounds like your typical Silicon Valley story, you know, it like does. one against the world. And, and it's never going to work. And then she, she, she pushed through. And here we are. It's, 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 pure Silicon Valley kind of, kind of story, you know, with one crazy founder with a vision and then little by little garnering support. And then at some point, uh, a tipping point and then boom, 150 million users. Right. And then it just feels like blatantly obvious. I do. I do love this because I, I love telling these stories to founders that I talk to, you know, they're like, okay, this idea sounds a little bit crazy. And I said, okay, well, let me tell you a crazy idea, right? I'm going to put bicycles that aren't, aren't attached to anything in the street somewhere, and I'm going to charge 15 cents for a half an hour for people to use it. And I'm going to put a lock on it that has, you know, that has a QR code. And then I'm also going to put a GPS. And by the time I'm even halfway through this conversation, they're like, please talk about something else. <laughs> right? But yet, but yet you implement it, and then it works. And then not, it's not just something that happens in a, one city in China. It's a, something that every city in the world it has a bikeable surface wants. This is really fascinating to me. It's this type of business actually that keeps me going every day because it just seems so insane at the start and then it seems so obvious later. Yeah, so, definitely. Right, so I, the, so I, go ahead, sorry. I always say the, the solution is quite culturally agnostic. Yeah. Uh, and so that's why it, it fits nicely whether it's in the US or Europe or China. And uh, if there's one learning also that I got from Startup Grind is that, uh, that whoever who's who's starting a business or thinking of starting a business, like thinking global is one of the very, very first things you also got to consider. Uh, like you don't have to, to, to create something that will fit every single city or every single user in the world, but in the vision behind the product or the service, uh, thinking global is extremely important. At least that, like, that's one learning that I got from, from listening to different people at Startup Grind. Yeah, just one more thing before I let you go. Of the 7 million bicycles that are deployed now, how many of them are outside of the home market, for lack of a better term? What percentage? Uh, I, I can't say in terms of percentage, but I can say the vast majority is still uh, in China. Yeah, fair because enough. Of course, China has this, has this scale, and just now I mentioned like 150 million users. Uh, it's possible because the solution is amazing, and it's convenient, and, and we've got great funding from our, our VCs and, and partners, et cetera, et cetera, but also because we're in China. Like China has this scale and this capacity to embrace new solutions and to innovate um, again, like to be really uh, proactive and optimistic about things. So most of those bikes are still um, in China, and, and most of the users are also still in China, just for a question of, of scale. But that is that is uh, shifting quite rapidly because as we gain speed internationally, and as um, international users also become more familiar with the concept, uh, speed is definitely we're, we're definitely picking up speed. Yeah, and look, I mean, if you're head of global expansion, I could, there's just so many ways, right, and so many avenues to expand the use of this service. You know, you, 
I don't even need to tell you about it, but at what level does the efficiency begin? In other words, could you just do an installation of 25 bicycles in a small town and that still is efficient enough to make money and work, or, or are there too many people involved in sort of the building out of that that installation that make it not efficient and not profitable? Like what is the, what is the tipping point for size in any individual location? Um, there definitely is a tipping point. So 25, uh, we might not do that unless it's in uh, the new Apple campus in Cupertino. Fair enough. Um, if anyone's listening. <laughs> <laughs> Please. <laughs> um, but there, there, there is kind of a tipping point. So with Manchester, we started with 1,000 bikes. Uh, Milan, 8,000. Florence, 4,000. So I'd say, yeah, a few thousands, a few thousands. Uh, but these numbers are also going to gonna ramp up these initial, these, these quantities are like initial quantities. So um, a few thousands, I guess, would be the, the, the tipping point for, for a market outside of China. Okay. I mean, I just, and again, it's just me. I don't have enough information on this, but it seems to me that there are some towns and some cities that would benefit from this hugely, but also don't need that many because they themselves are not that large. And I'm, I'm sure you will figure out a way to make it so that with 100 bikes or 50 bikes, it's still economically feasible to mm. sort of install them, manage them, and, and make money. And I feel like, I don't want to take up so much more of your time, but I feel like there are so many other things to talk about, right? Because there, there seems to be way more ways to make money as well. And again, it doesn't sound like that's the only goal for this company, right? The environmental sustainability, the ease of transportation, right? the flexibility of time, like all these things and the convenience of just using the service are so compelling. It almost seems like the money will make itself to a certain extent. Is, is that a fair characterization as well? Because you haven't talked about payments. You haven't talked about deliveries. You haven't talked about so many other parts of the business where there are ways to make more money. And again, not, I don't mean this in a crass way. I just mean it in sort of an efficiency of service way. There's so many things that can get done with this. It just seems like the opportunities are endless. Uh, definitely. That's why I... I often say I feel incredibly proud and lucky is because there are all those opportunities and whatever way you think you can find a way to, to make money with that so that being said it's not what we're focusing on right now no, again not we, at all. we focus on operational efficiency but yeah in in the future then it's 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 up to one's imagination to kind of imagine a, a new way to play around with this uh, with this business model because it really is something something different something new yeah, I mean, I could just think of four more sensors you could put on the bicycle already that would be an, an insane way to to um to learn things for lack of a better term i mean i don't want to yeah. put ideas in your head that you've already had but i just think having a moving vehicle that's creating no negative impact on the environment that's traveling through cities i don't think i have to tell you or the founders of your company how that can be used for the betterment of society in many other ways definitely i couldn't agree more Okay, look, let's stop here, Florian. This has been awesome and really informational for me. Hopefully you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Um, I just want to thank you. So Florian Bonner, the, um, the head of global expansion, and just the employee number 37 is maybe more important than anything at, um, at Mobike. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. It was, uh, it was a great conversation. I feel like we connected on a number of different values. <laughs> That's uh, awesome. I'd love to follow up. And for Please. whoever's listening... Um, my Twitter is at MobikeFlow, which is very simple. Uh, and I'm available on, 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 on my Twitter is at MobikeFlow, yeah, and I'm available on LinkedIn, of course. So anyone who's got ideas or, or who just wants to chat, feel free to reach out. That was really awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you.
You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.